watched the playoff game and my mate reckoned Supi reckoned total cost total fit like if you go up that game probably is worth like two hundred million. When you include yeah. T V rights and then if you go down straight away you've got two payment. years of parachute payments which is sixty million. Oh, that's a lot, isn't it? I was I was always in aware it was at the hundred million pound game, but two hundred million pounds is just I don't know, I just think, like, maybe this is an old man as you get older, <laughs> but, like, the money in football is just really starting to put me off. It's just getting out of control. Are there any, like, Bentley dealers in and around Luton that we can go along? I think those boys are going to spend most of their bonus in Vegas at the weekend. Vegas. Probably. weekend. Yeah, that was good. Good for them. Yeah. Are, are we good? Should we get on with it? Yeah, let's go. Welcome. Taking stock. After the bell, episode eight. Eight. One on one, mano a mano, with the intellectual oh, heavyweight oh, that is Mr. Jonathan Raymond. Quite keeping cool, lots of things. Jr. How are you keeping, my friend? Well, thank you. Well, a bit tired after a week on holiday with the children. Um, it's not a rest anymore to go on holiday. Apparently. No. But no. It was lovely. We were herding um, one and two year olds at my mate's barbecue at the weekend. So oh, amazing. I would say empathise, but it it was about three hours and I was knackered, so mm. I can't really. No. No. That's a nice thing. It's nice. That's men. That's men. Um, so where to begin? Um, yeah, like I, th- I think there's only one place we can begin this week. Nvidia. Um, Nvidia's numbers last Thursday wasn't it? Um, set a record for the biggest single day increase in market cap ever. The U.S. stock market up two hundred billion. They added in market cap in a day. The previous record was $190 billion for Microsoft. Um, they had an original guide for next quarter for $7 billion of revenue, and they're going to do 11 It's a lot, isn't it? I mean, it's a big I, old difference. Uh, it was actually Wednesday night, and dare I say, I was actually watching CNBC when the numbers hit the, hit the tape. So I was excited. the sort of man you are, I know, Johnny. I know. Um, so Wednesday night after the bell was it, and then the big move was, was on Thursday. Big move after hours. Yeah, I mean the first thing to say is like this. This is one of the top ten biggest companies in the top world. Top five now. It's just got in. Oh, sorry, it's top five in the US. So it'll be top ten in the world. Yeah. It's trading like a penny stock. Uh, what's well, gone up? <laughs> <laughs> but it's. Uh, I mean, we've got the the price chart here is the the top pain, but you know, from a year ago, it's more than doubled. But what we don't see on this chart is if you go back to through. 2020, 2021, 2022, it actually has fallen quite a long way. So it, I think, I think the stock peaked at three hundred dollars, didn't it? And it got down to about one hundred and twenty dollars, and it's yeah. what nearly four hundred dollars today. So it's, it has round tripped a long way. But the rise in the last, I mean, it's what doubled so far, more than doubled so far this year in twenty twenty three alone, and we're only five months in. So it's been extraordinary. But then. If everyone talks about technology and adoption and AI, which is the story here, so talk a little bit more about that. What you know, we, we sit close to this, but if you're someone who's coming at this from the outside and you see a lot of, of in the press about Nvidia, what's what's the story here? What's the narrative? Well, it's the picks and shovels in the gold rush. I mean, that's as basically as simple as you can uh, as you can describe it. They make the computer processing units and the general um, the GPUs that go into the computing power behind artificial intelligent robots, mainly generative AI, such as ChatGPT. And when you go to Google and type in something, uh, as in who was the King of England in 1452, Google 
pulls up a load of websites and you visit other websites, whereas which doesn't take a lot of computing power. Whereas if you go to ChatGPT and put the same question in, ChatGPT delves in, it does the work for you. So it scans yeah. its database and the internet and it gives you the answer, which takes an order of magnitude of a lot more computing power to do that rather than just pulling up a list of answers to send you to a load of websites. The, the technological engine in the car has to be a lot bigger. A lot bigger, 100%. Okay. And they're making the engines. And they're making the bits that go into the engine. And the one thing about it is that there are not many companies making the bits of the engine. Yeah. So there's a scarcity value to what they do. Okay. So we may come and talk about it, but you know the difference between, in a way, between now and the dot-com boom of the late 90s, early noughties, was that in those days you had lots of companies that you could go and buy if you wanted exposure to the internet as a new thing. You could go and buy Cisco... Um, Sun Microsystems as it was in those days, Oracle, IBM to a degree, or you could go and buy Pets.com, or you could buy Amazon, or you could buy Microsoft. So there's lots of different ways of playing the internet, or Vodafone, I guess, in the UK and BT were the two big, huge beneficiaries here. But in the AI space, you've actually got quite a narrow suite of companies because there aren't that many companies who oh, are oh, sold. I, oh, I think the supply AI. is coming. Oh, supply's coming, don't you worry. Don't you worry. But what today, was it you said to me the other day when the ducks are quacking, when you've the got ducks to feed them. them? Feed them, exactly right. And it's fair to say the ducks are most definitely quacking today. So you're going to see, you're going to see an all, like, companies who have nothing to do with AI starting to reference, I think you've actually mentioned it here in the pack, isn't it, John? This is one of your charts you sent me. Um, oh, yeah. not the Google searches uh, so earnings season AI mentions yeah. look at that if you want to get a little short term pop in your in your share price you know what to say definitely so we, we, yeah so, the, so this this chart is taken from um, transcripts of company earnings calls uh, sorry no it's this uh, yeah and the number of mentions by those companies of AI has gone literally parabolic which you'd kind of expect and sort of ally to that is the whole theme in the first place, the the Google search data, which we've we've also got. So if you index the number of Google searches for artificial intelligence here in blue, it's gone um, up a lot. But the chart also shows the index searches of Bitcoin, which have which has had two big spikes, one in 2017 and another one in 2020, um, and Metaverse, which uh, had a big spike in early 2022 when. Facebook decided that was the start. So, you know, I guess you could take this back further and, and put other kind of search terms in here like internet or .com and go back to 2000 and yeah. you probably see some similar results. But, you know, it is the trend of the moment. Um, I mean, there's, a, there's, we'll come back to NVIDIA in a moment, but I wrote something about this this morning or came out this morning. You know, investment fads are a lot like fashion fads sometimes. I, I think AI is certainly going to be stickier than the metaverse, for instance, and find more long-term use applications. But these hot trends and fashions do come and they do go. And in the short term, probably, there will be some disappointment around AI and the narrative probably will fall away a little bit. Um, I think it's easy to see how AI has more wide-scale adoption potential in the shorter term than particularly metaverse and more widely crypto. So there are some potentially quite interesting uses of 
crypto and blockchain technology as a means of payment or as a database system. Yeah. But it's not going to be in our everyday lives. AI and ChatGPT in particular, you know, has the potential to be used by lots of us, particularly those of us in white collar jobs. Um, do you think? Do you, do you think it's a, a threat to investment advisors, financial advisors? Um, do I think it's the threat? That might be. Well, that might Not be to it. you, because no, you no, know no. what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, um, uh, potentially, yes, but I also think its initial use case is going to be in taking away a lot of the drudgery of our day-to-day yeah, job. Yeah, 100%. So let's get that done first, and then let's worry about the next step. Ultimately, you know, as we talked about before, human beings like talking to human beings, particularly as far as money goes, because it's quite an emotional topic, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's going away anytime soon. I think you, you can use it to do quite a lot of heavy lifting, like a draft an email to a client who's concerned about the market in style of Jonathan Raymond. Yeah. Um, that I mean, that would be frankly transformational. The ability to do yeah. something like and that. And when we go see clients, you know, we prepare reports of performance and valuations and some charts and things. And and you know that that takes time for yeah. someone. And that's the sort of thing that AI can do relatively quickly and relatively easily. And it probably needs tweaking, etc. But it's you know, again, it's taking away some of that drudgery. So let's get that done first, and then let's see kind of where it leads from there free up the time to, to focus on the good stuff things, yeah. um, there's two things in video I want to talk about just, just before we move on um, this thing's going to be the new Tesla you're going to have to have an opinion on NVIDIA <laughs> I think it's going to be the sort of thing on Twitter that divides people into bulls and bears there's going to be no middle ground and you're going to be asked by clients in meetings what your opinion is on it um, I think that's pretty unhelpful because I don't think you need to swing at every pitch that you're bold, I suppose, would be the first observation. But I just I just think this has a feel to me of a stock that's moves are going to be completely wild. Wild. Really out of control. I mean, it went up 25% a day, so already we're seeing that. But I think it's just going to be such a divisive thing. And I think a lot of people are going to get run over trying to short it. Uh, agreed. Don't short something that is. That is I, I actually don't. Th- I mean, it may or may not be overvalued or undervalued. We'll we'll find out. But when these things trade on, you know, we've got. We'll go back to the first chart that we had. We had Nvidia price in the top pane here, and and price to earnings in the bottom pane, and it's you know, fifty five times earnings. Why why should it trade on fifty five times versus sixty five versus forty five? Yeah, exactly, and and and. The valuation range has been seventy to fifty um, in the last three to six months, but even going back, you know, it was on thirty-five times a year ago. So these things can move around a huge amount um, in terms of valuation, based on feeling, sentiment, what they say, what new products they release, the hype cycle generally. So I totally agree. It's a it might be less divisive than Tesla because the man at the top isn't. Elon Musk. Well, who's the CEO? I mean, I don't even know uh, who the chief exactly. Jensen, somebody whose name forgets me. So, Probably um, a good sign. I recognise him, I saw him. But yeah, exactly right. So it might be a bit less divisive than that. Um, and they don't quite have the same, you know, Musk wants to take over the world basically, doesn't he? And Tesla is this platform to do so, whereas Nvidia, these guys are just making really, really good chips that are really widely used, yeah. both in AI and in other, other areas as well. So you're absolutely right, but we just need to be, I think I, I think I agree with you, you just, you don't need to play at every game, 
in this business. You can just let things pass and watch with interest. I, I guess my point is that maybe it's a modern, more modern thing. We all feel we need to have an opinion on mm. everything. and We have FOMO as well, though, don't we? It's the old classic, why don't we put a £1,000 into that a few months ago? I'll be rich by now. Well, our, well, in, I mean, our in-house great. podcast producer is already dabbling in it. Well, there we go. <laughs> well, there we go. He's, uh, <laughs> he's uh, QC's best trader. Good for him. Um, the other thing I was going to say is, you know, when something like this you're trading at, 45, 55 times. It reminds me a bit of, do you remember Wiley Coyote used to chase Roadrunner off the cliff? Mm-hmm. And there'd be that moment where his legs were mm-hmm. spinning, but it's... Yeah, he would before he started falling back down to earth. When, when these things fall out of favour, it's not like there's a sensible valuation level to carry them. No, 100%. And, and that's already happened in the last 18 months. You, you know, we've got very short memories here. Of course we do. Zoom and Peloton are back below where they were before the pandemic started. Zoom is on 12 times earnings. I mean, it's mad. No one had heard of Zoom before the pandemic, or very few had heard of Zoom pandemic. It's become ubiquitous, and it's grown its sales and revenues multiple since 2020, but the stock is lower than it was then. So you're absolutely right. When these things start unwinding, there really is no kind of, um, there is no flaw. Well, so. as you've as you've sort of pointed out, I mean, you can have unbelievably good companies. Excuse me. So this is Microsoft, isn't it? It is. Microsoft valuation and earnings are in the middle, are they? So the earnings per share is the middle pane here. Yeah, the price is the top pane. And so price has gone up over the long term. Earnings have gone up because, as we know, Microsoft is a ridiculously good company. Yeah. Um, and the valuation's pay, gone down. And the, so, and the valuation's gone down. So I think the executive summary is you can have the best company in the world, but if you pay too much for it. So I'd, so if you look in 99, 2000, at the peak of the dot-com mania, Microsoft shares got to $60 a share. At that time, the earnings were less than dollars, about $0.80 cents a share. And so correspondingly, the price-earnings ratio, which is one divided by the other, was basically 60 So at the time, you were buying a $60 stock with a dollar of earnings, 60 times PE. If you held Microsoft shares, uh, Microsoft shares went from 60 to $18 in 2009, so they fell by three quarters, and then they recovered back to $60 in 2015. So in 2015, you got back to your in point if you happened to buy them at the peak of $60. Now in 2015, the earnings were no longer $1 a share, the earnings were over $2.50 a share. And if you look at that earnings chart, it goes up in a straight line, pretty much with the odd blip around the financial crisis, and there was a bit of accounting funnies in 2012. Accounting funnies. Um, <laughs> because that was, you know, that was Nadella when he first joined the business, and he basically like kitchen sink the whole thing. Um, so the company, from a fundamental perspective, if you look at that middle pane, have delivered serious increase and in growth in profits per share over that 15-year span. Share yeah. price has gone nowhere. So that goes to show to you what can happen if you overpay for a stock, even if it then generates the growth that you hoped it would generate, mm-hmm. just because the valuation unwinds over that 15-year period. And you could buy it in 2015 for 15 times earnings. You could buy it for 10 times earnings at the low in 2011, 2012. So I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen to NVIDIA, but if we're sat here in 15 years' time, it's a big if, um, then it's not... You know, Nvidia might not be on sixty times; it might be on fifteen times, and the stock's gone nowhere. The, the, they have grown the earnings. Th- this is what people feel to get. It's because di- it's difficult to get your head around. There's two bets: this or the earnings going to go up. Well, for something like Nvidia, 
clearly, absolutely, yes. And they're potentially going to go up by an awful, awful, mm. awful lot. But what is that earnings stream worth? And if you overpay for that earnings stream, it's probably not going to be a great investment. Yep. If you underpay for that earnings stream, it's going to be a great investment. Mm. You know, that's value investing 101, right? So yep. um, it can be difficult for, for us to get our head around. I mean, the obvious analogy is, is horse racing. You don't always benefit, or excuse me, you don't always bet in the favourite. Get bit betting on the favourite, you you bleed out after a while. Sometimes mm-hmm. you look have to look for slightly better odds, and and that's why people look for for slightly cheaper companies. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about the Bank of England a couple of weeks ago. We've subsequently had the inflation report that we mentioned. Um, when we spoke about it, it's it's I think it's fair to say it's not what they wanted to see. Um, <clears throat> inflation is taking a lot longer to. Expunge from uh, the the UK economy than it is certainly elsewhere in the world. Um, I think we've you know we've talked about that previously. Main issue here is your know, food inflation. Food inflation is like twenty percent. I mean you're a you're a you're from a farming background. Farming stock. Yeah. I mean what's what's going on here, John? Um, well, these things do have long lag times and long lead times, both on the upside and the downside. So. The UK is not necessarily an outlier globally, although it's a little bit of an outlier. Supermarkets are not profiteering because supermarket margins are three or four percent, so they don't make. They're not. You know, it's not super profitable business selling food. It's a high volume, low margin game. Yeah. But producing food from a primary producer end has a long lead time, whether that's milk potatoes or wheat or bread or whatever it might be, and then you've got the people in the middle that process the primary product and all their cost structures have gone up as well. So if you think about packaging costs, labour costs have gone up a huge amount. There's a lot of energy needed in the supply chain between processing the actual stuff and the transport and logistics side of it as well. So all of that has had to be built into the price and a lot of those costs haven't fallen. They might have stopped going up. So in terms of fuel and energy in particular, but they haven't yet come down materially enough so that food prices at the shop can start coming down. It's okay. just lag times and lead times that's going to work through. And it's proving sticky. And I would probably say, and I, and I might be a bit biased, but the whole supply chain from the supermarket back down to the primary producer has probably been starved of margin, i.e. it's not been a very profitable business for the last 20 years. No. Um, because it's been very competitive and the supermarkets have been very efficient in their pricing, ruthless, some might say. And I think rightly from a long-term perspective some of that margin is being rebuilt into the supply chain which is a good thing from a long-term perspective because if you don't have any margin you don't get any investment and you don't get any growth and we end up you know losing a large part of our kind of food sector so it's going to take time um i think the inflation number will come down but i don't think we're going to see wholesale falls in the price of food at the shops anytime soon unfortunately I mean, you say there about competition what are the forces that have made, you know, from reading between the lines of what you're saying, farming's quite a competitive, difficult business. I mean, what are, what are the headwinds this sort of industry has, has faced? Well, you, well, your basic global commodity markets are, you know, just that. So farmers are price takers, essentially, for most of the stuff they produce, whether okay. that's like beef or wheat or milk or poultry, etc. And so, you know, just been driven by weather issues in South America or in... Ukraine can't export wheat or, or China pig issues or whatever it might be. Lots of factors, um, you know, kind of impact that. 
and farmers, most farmers who are producing primary produce don't really have an option of selling it somewhere else for a higher price because the price is the price. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like you can go and play off the market, supermarkets against each other. You need uh, to yeah. deal with who you're going to deal with. Exactly, right? exactly. Um, so food inflation is is as you can see there pretty pretty intense, up towards twenty percent year on year. Um, inflation is coming down, so that's a good thing. It's just taking a lot longer than people would have thought. Um, counterpoint to that, you know. It's a stat that we've mentioned a couple of times, or it's a theme that we've mentioned a couple of times around mortgage re- re- refinancing. There's 1.4 million households with fixed rate mortgage deals due to expire over the coming year. Yeah, sure. So 1.4 million a, a lot. Uh, was a 30 million households in the UK? It's a, you know, if you assume what, three and a half, four percent higher yeah. mortgage every, every year. Yeah. I mean, it's going to affect your spending, probably. Oh, uh, definitely because it's quite a material jump for most people's mortgage costs. You know, two, three hundred pounds a month for any household is going to be meaningful and noticeable, isn't it? So if it's five, six hundred pounds, then that's a lot. So it, it is going to have an impact. As we've talked before, it's a slow-moving impact. It's only as people's fixed rates roll off that they see the impact on their bank account month on month. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're just going to have to kind of see how it goes for the next few months. Is there some evidence that there is some trading down and some weakness in discretionary spending in the UK? Not really. It's not obvious. Not well, obvious. In Liverpool yeah. at the weekend, there definitely wasn't. Oh, there we go. Well, that's because the, the toffee stayed up there, didn't they? So they're all partying like that. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of lighthearted point, but it is true. I mean, you go out, you go out for dinner, you go out to the pub and yeah. places are packed. They are, but I, mean, I, I try not to let the sort of London southeast bubble kind of cloud my view on that but definitely it doesn't feel like a recession when you walk around no but that's conversely then is good news bad news and vice versa in yeah. terms of well, maybe the bank they need to go to six percent which would cause a few more problems wouldn't it wow i've been wrong on rates the whole time, been wrong on rates the whole time. exactly so yeah good to admit you're don't, wrong. D- so, well. <laughs> don't make predictions um one of the knock-on impacts though of, of uk inflation um, when you look at bond markets is that the spread that you can see here so basically the extra return that you're getting from lending to the UK government versus our friends in the States is as high as it's been in the last 10 years mm. um, and that's down to that sticky inflation story as well I mean inflation in the US is coming down much quicker than it is in the UK they're now down to a five five and a half handle whereas in the UK we're still in well in the eights and therefore, investors in government bonds, if they think inflation in the UK is going to be higher, demand a higher return on our bonds to protect against that inflation. And, and, and this has been happening at a time when the US government has begun negotiating to avoid yeah. going, going defaulting on the yeah, debt effectively. Yeah, so basically shows you how much in, inflation has an impact there. Yep. Um, you got me to throw this one in as well. I mean, this, this is the two year the 20 year and the 30 year guilt yields um yeah. so rates as we can see there they're not quite back to where they were post the the money budget but they're not far off and they're pretty much at the long end so the 30 is back over four and a half percent which is where it was in the uh, aftermath of the mini budget and it's just quietly ground higher in the last few months so the 10 year was you know three in three and a half at the start of the year and it's kind of nearly four and a half today um and i think as we've spoken before it's a big problem for Jeremy Hunt and the Chancellor if 
I think a 1% rise in government bond yields costs the exchequer an extra 28 billion a year in interest cost. It's a lot of money. So, you know, I wouldn't be looking at this chart as a chancellor or as the chancellor and, and feeling too warm and fuzzy inside because I think, they, uh, and that comes back to the point about inflation. You, you know, if you can knock inflation on the head, even if it takes something resembling a mild recession, where not too many oh, people snap, lose their jobs. That, that snap your hand off yeah, for a mild recession. Off, and base rates can go back to something with a two or a three handle, two or three percent. I think, you know, bring bond yields back down again and that would would, would have a nice release valve on, on the public finances, but as it stands, uh, tricky. Yeah, I mean, I, I my fairly basic theory on this is that people are incentivized to get inflation down and get rates down, and that's mm. what will happen. Um, it might take longer than, than they would hope, but that's basically what, but that's reliant on probably going back, talking out both sides of the mouth, relies on people spending less money and people yeah. are determined to enjoy themselves um, after, you know, the events of a couple of years ago and, you yeah. know, I don't, you can't obviously blame people for doing that. Yeah. Um, I saw a stat in an article from the Wall Street Journal over the weekend um, that caught my eye, New York's, New York City's vacant office space could fill 26 and a half Empire State buildings. Um, London's potentially a little bit different, but New Yorkers are not going back to work seemingly in the office. No, and I, and I think the stats I've seen is that office occupancy is 50% of pre-pandemic levels, and it's been stuck at 50% for quite a long time. Pre- expect that? Is that the sort of level you would have guessed? No, I would have guessed higher. So I would have guessed like 70% of pre-pandemic levels, Yeah, probably. But again, I think we've mentioned this before, but what does a recession do for getting people back to the office? I mean, if you think your job's under threat, are you going to spend more time at your desk next to your boss or not? Um, well, that's you know, my probably more. theory. But it, but it has been pretty pretty sticky, and it's not doesn't seem to be going up, so there is a bit of an issue there. And this comes back to the, the sort of thing about Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic and, and the U.S. regional bank story. A lot of U.S. commercial real estate or offices a lot of the debt is held on these banks' balance sheets. So it doesn't seem to be a problem of magnitude of subprime mortgages, for instance, but it could be a pretty big problem for some of these banks if some of these you know, refinances coming up and they can't roll the debt over very easily and the asset's not worth what it was. could be, I'm not saying systemic, but it could be a problem for the banking system uh, and the wider economy as well. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's lots of reasons to be bearish on US commercial real estate. I don't know what the numbers are for, for London offices or UK offices, but I'm, I think the US is faring a good bit worse than, than, the, uh, than the rest of the world, particularly yeah. London. I don't know. I would, say, I would hazard a guess that the UK occupancy is a bit higher. Mm. You think so? Walking around the city midweek and walk, in London midweek, it's Midweek, busy. but then you get into the summer and everyone starts playing golf. That's half half ten this week as well. So it is. I need to talk to you as well. I've just been my mate uh, stayed with us for a couple of days. Gave me a hundred and fifty pound American golf. Did he? Voucher. Yeah. yeah I'm gonna get a new putter. Because okay. new equipment solves all your problems, right? It does. Yeah. Well, you could buy. I don't know what's that. A month's supply of new golf balls. <laughs> <laughs> Some uh. nice ones to carve into the lake. Yeah. Um. So something we've picked up on a couple of times. Uh couple of times over the last couple of weeks um gonna give it a name probably the life the life jacket trade isn't a bad one um so you've got these stocks that are like consumer staples 
doing it very high valuations and I think that's people like buying life jackets mm -hmm. whether or not they're going to need them because you're going to need to hide out in safety mm -hmm. and the counter the counter of that the other side of that is that if you've got the safe stuff that's really expensive the economically sensitive stuff in theory is is pretty cheap um, and what you've got here is a chart of the market cap of meta um, versus then is Facebook yeah Facebook um, versus the top five mining companies globally and you meta is a larger market cap than all five of those companies put together and you're getting two and a half so the, the free cash the, flow yield the, the, yeah those top five mining stocks generate double the free cash flow yield that meta does on a combined basis so, so cash profit is that or yeah, cash after all investment okay. and dividends etc how do you explain that to someone uh, why that because that sounds completely illogical well, that's all we're here for isn't it uh, two things, I guess. The profit stream from those mining stocks is a lot more volatile because they're reliant on copper and iron ore prices, which go up and down and up and down. Um, and secondly, the growth of Meta is a bit more consistent or estimated to be a bit more consistent, and you've got a little bit more you know, that free cash flow. Uh, it's not Meta's perhaps not the best example given what it's been through in the last twelve months, but generally speaking, you know, a good quality growth tech stock, you can estimate within a relative tolerance of what the profits are going to do next year and the year after and the year after. But with these mining stocks, you don't have that. So I think that's that's probably the main part. Um, but it's pretty extraordinary, uh, and we've talked about if we are transitioning to a non-fossil fuel world, we need a lot of copper. Right, here we go. Uh, so this chart here, which is the materials used in clean energy tech, so things like electric cars, conventional cars, offshore wind, onshore wind, lots of copper, lots of lithium, um, mm. lots of nickel, um, zinc. zinc, yeah. All that good stuff, yeah. And the companies that are digging this stuff out of the ground are those miners yeah, <laughs> broadly speaking right. I mean those are the big five majors so you know potentially long term a decent structural growth play there on on a fairly keen valuation but i think with these things you've got to be prepared to be look a bit silly in the next 12 to 18 months because if you get a recession and you buy something cyclical going into a recession it's probably not going to do too well i would have thought no and, and and not dissimilar to kind of nvidia if we look at the rio tinto share price from the start of the pandemic you know it was 40 pounds a share it's been up to 60 back down to 45, back up to 60, back down to 40, up to 63, and it's now down at 48. So the share prices are pretty volatile. Um, and therefore, you, you know, we just you do have that volatility in the share price in a not dissimilar way that you do in, in, um, in NVIDIA. So you just have to be slightly careful. But I think medium term, as we've, we've talked about with the oil stocks, and our, you can very easily make quite a bullish case for owning a basket. I think I'd rather miners. buy a miner than an oil stock today, personally speaking. No, that's probably fair. Yeah, Just on the valuation. Valuations are good. A bit less recession risk, I guess. You know, In a recession, the oil price tends to get hit quite hard, so you do have a bit more risk in, in the earnings stream of the oil companies. The, the, I went back and did... I don't, I don't think I ever ended up doing anything on it, but recessions going back to 1970, how various assets did, with the exception of 73, which, the oil, which was the oil price shock, yep. oil just gets taken out to the woodshed. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, that makes sense. 
quite a cyclical asset, pretty unsurprising. Um, final thanks, I think we're, we're coming up on time. Um, recent Gallup poll of US citizens, 58% said that they owned stocks through some kind of stock account, share account. Um, I think it's probably, I think most people would say lower in the UK. I don't think we just don't have the same sort of culture of share ownership as our friends in the States have. But 58% sounds low to me. 58 does, does sound low. Uh, I but guess, I think there's probably people that aren't aware that they Well, so that, that, would, that would be my point. So pretty much everyone in the UK has a pension scheme of some description, and within yeah. that pension scheme there will be equities. Um, do people who have got a pension, if they were asked, do you own shares, they'd probably say no without really thinking through, well, actually I've got a pension and I've got some Apple in my pension, so that's a share. So the answer is yes. So my best guess is it's kind of, Difficult to ask the question and difficult for people to know, really, isn't it? Uh, would it be the same in the US? I mean, the, the US have got what the four hundred one k's, which is a similar, very similar structure. I don't think they've got auto enrolment. No, um, I think you're right, actually. Which we obviously do have in the UK, but I think mm. the main gap here is knowing that is being an investor in the first place and knowing that you're an investor. And I think quite a lot of people would be unaware of that fact. They are actually shareholders in some of the best businesses in the world, mm. which. Industry, I think, do a bit of a better job in communicating to people. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I think share ownership in Europe is a lot lower than it even is in the UK, which is a lot lower than it is in the US, and that's a really? kind of as much a cultural thing as anything. I think. Why is that? Because Europeans be typically don't. Well, not typically, but the property ownership rates are lower, aren't they? Uh, ownership rates are lower. Yeah, I don't know. But they, 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 well, again, they've got you know to find benefit pensions, haven't they, and life insurance schemes, and, and those sorts of pots of savings rather than the, the direct share account, investment account type of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, culture, I guess. Uh, culture. They need to take a leaf out of young Alex's they book do. and load up yeah. on Meta and NVIDIA. Yeah. yeah. And Good man. Too. Clean it up. <laughs> um, thanks very much, mate. What are you up to? Thanks, what are you up to next couple of days? Uh, off on my travels at Sea Clans tomorrow down to the West Country. That'd Lovely. be nice. Yeah. That'd be nice. A few podcasts in the car. You don't listen to us, do you? Uh, no, I won't be tomorrow. No. <laughs> no, no. Listen back. Uh, how about you? Uh, I've got the su- succession finale tonight. Sarah's coming around. Don't say anything. We're still, we're still on season one. I mean, it's so good. We, we don't want to rush through it. So we are getting towards the end of season one. And it's first class TV. Really, it's first class. Your man, um, what is it, that plays Tom. Yeah. I can't remember the name of the actor. Everything he is in, he is absolutely fantastic yeah, in. Kieran Culkin is unbelievable in it. Yeah. I saw um, Brian Cox had a couple of things to say about, um, no spoilers, about this ser- series. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it's been absolutely fantastic. It's great TV. It is the sort of TV show that when people tell me they haven't watched, I'm jealous of the yeah. fact that they've still got to watch it. So if you haven't seen that, check it out. Um, Top two. Johnny, thanks very much. Um, Alex, thank you very much. Um, Folks, thank you very much for for sticking around watching us. Um, We will obviously, obviously if you have any questions or or want us to cover anything, then hit me up at david.henry at culturechiviet.com. Otherwise, we will see you in a couple of weeks.